Maybe you, uh, you heard me give the illustration about Bob Harper, uh, the guy from Biggest Loser, who was, you know, uh, he's kind of had a big impact on me as, in terms of, of health and fitness and everything. And, you know, he says all these motivating things and inspirational things and uh, has millions and millions of people around the world who absolutely love him, right? And so I was thinking, well, you know, maybe it would be kind of funny if I just let him know, hey, I, I used you as an illustration of my sermon uh, this, this week. And so Sunday night last week, I, I got on Twitter one of the big social networks, and, and I tweeted to him, uh, and I said, Bob, just so you know, and I hope you don't mind, I used you as an illustration in my sermon this morning, and what I was thinking was, well, okay, so some of his followers might see that and maybe go and listen to the sermon. I put a, a link uh, on, on that tweet um, so that they could go and listen to it. Anyway, uh, so I get tweeted back uh, Monday morning, Bob Harper went and listened to the sermon, and he tweeted me back. He said, I was really honored by what you had to say about me. And I thought, man, oh, I mean, it was maybe seven or eight minutes into the sermon, but he didn't know that when he went to listen to it. So praise the Lord. I mean, uh, somebody as big as him, you know, he's got millions and millions of followers around the world, and, and some of those people actually saw his tweet to me, and so they went and listened to the sermon as well. So, yeah, people from around the world were, were listening to last week's sermon. Uh, speaking of, of around the world, uh, anybody paying attention to the news lately? And how much civil unrest there is, and how many how many changes um, are, are going on in the world right now? You know, it's kind of amazing if you look back just a month or so ago, uh, the, the world was different. There was a different political landscape just uh, a month ago in the Middle East and in in parts of Africa. And in less than a month, uh, a lot of these regimes and, and dictators and uh, government bodies have either been forced out. Or they've been, uh, you know, they've been threatened to be forced out, or they've been asked to step down, and it's kind of amazing if you really think about it that that kind of change could happen in so many different places and so quickly. But for those of us who, uh, you know, have grown up and, and seen how the internet has has changed everything, you know, maybe change isn't that big of a shocker to us. I mean, if I look back on my life, I see that the world now is drastically changed from when, when I was a kid. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody had ever even heard of the Internet, except for Al Gore, who, of course, <laughs> invented it, right? But seriously, you know, now, now it's, it's absolutely everywhere, and it's changed the whole, uh, the whole face of business and commerce in the world. It's changed the way uh, businesses do their business. It's changed the way we learn. You can get online now and get a degree. You don't have to go uh, to, to an educational facility or to a learning facility. You can get it all online. Um, the Internet's just made it a, a smaller world in the sense that information and, and products are now a lot more accessible than they were before. That's a, a huge change that most of us have seen in, in our lifetimes. But the thing is, and maybe this is the reason it's so shocking to me you know, that, that the world's changed so much over the last month, is that people are, are really, really resistant to change. People are really resistant to change. And if you don't believe me, uh, turn on the news next time Facebook changes its privacy policy. People go crazy over the smallest changes. And studies have actually shown that 90% of people who have heart bypass surgery, when they're told you have to change your lifestyle if you want to live, 90% of those people don't do it. They don't do it because people are resistant to change. And what that study reveals is that apparently people would rather die than change. 
Seriously, they would rather die than change. See, we, we, we don't like to be dragged outside of our, our comfort zones. We like to stay in our box and, and not to have to explore outside of that. But the thing is, where change is demanded, there's going to be resistance. Change scares people. Here's the thing. Change scares people because they overestimate the value of what they have, and they underestimate the value of what they could trade, what they have in for. Let me say that again. People overestimate the value of what they have, and they underestimate the value of what they could trade that in for. And when we apply that to the gospel, which certainly implies change and brings about change, it turns out to be one of those kind of good news, bad news situations. The good news is that the gospel itself doesn't change and that it will change us. But as somebody's looking toward that kind of change, the scary part is, maybe the bad news, if, if you're asking them, is that it does change us. It's a good change, but that's something that's going to be uncomfortable for us at the time. I know that for myself personally, when I was a young Christian and looking at uh, you know, my pastor who, who, who gave me the gospel message when I first believed, and I thought, man, I, I've got a long way to go to be like him. It's scary. Well, Paul spent the first 12 verses of this chapter, that's what we've covered the last two weeks. He spent the, the first 12 verses of this chapter giving us a lot of insight into the keys that will uh, have, a, have an important effect on our ability to impact uh, the community around us. And they had uh, a lot of, uh, these, these keys had uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot to do with the fact that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was really successful. And what he did is he was defending his credibility with them, basically, and he was reminding them of, of how much he loved them and, and how many different ways he loved them. Uh, chapter 1 revealed that the church in Thessalonica was having a huge impact on the community around them. They were very successful, but that didn't come easy. It didn't come at no cost. There were some tremendous obstacles that they had to overcome, that they had to face. And so over the next few verses, over the next three or four verses, Paul's going to give us some insight as to what these obstacles were and still are and how they got past them. So having given us so much insight about his ministry in Thessalonica, the keys to impact that he gave us, Paul's going to kind of switch gears here, giving us a wonderful truth an amazing truth about God's Word and the power of God's Word, writing in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let's stop there. Uh, did, did you catch how important that verse is? What, what, what he's really getting at there? He's talking about the power of the gospel. And I, and I don't think that there's a verse in, in the entire Bible that maybe summarizes so succinctly not only the power of Scripture, but the source of Scripture as well. He's reiterating for, uh, for us the fact that he's thankful. We saw that in chapter 1, that he's thankful for the Thessalonians, uh, that they didn't falter in their response to the gospel as a result of one of the first obstacles that they faced and one of the first obstacles that we'll face today. Paul says that they accepted the word of God not as the word of men, but as the word of God. You see, people tend to be skeptical of our faith 
And they'll say that, you know, this book was written, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And so they're skeptical about that because it was written, there are 66 different books in it that were written by about 40 different authors. And it was written really over a span of about 3,000 years. I mean, thousands of years. And yet, for us, we see that as, sign, as a sign of its authority and of, uh, of its divine nature because it's not only been preserved nearly flawlessly, 99.7% uh, preservation for 3,000 years, but the cohesiveness of the Bible is absolutely amazing. The cohesiveness, there aren't contradictions. To have that many authors in that many different places, in that many different time periods, writing different things, and yet there's not a contradiction in there, that is amazing. It's, it's practically unthinkable. You can't find another book that, has, that, can, that you can say the same type of thing about. Nevertheless, there's this impression among people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior that it's just a book written by men. And so this creates two objections, which are, or can be, obstacles of impact. The first objection you might hear is that, okay, well, even you guys say that the Bible is written by men, men make mistakes, and so therefore the Bible must have errors in it. And you'll, you'll hear that from some people. Some people will throw that one out there. But here's the thing. People don't always err, right? People don't always make mistakes. If we were always making mistakes, then you could say, well, yeah, how are we supposed to trust this, this book inspired by God and recorded by men? You know, how do we know they didn't make any mistakes? But we don't always make mistakes. I mean, my, my shoe is, is tied. If, if I had made a mistake, it wouldn't be, right? Uh, we don't always make mistakes, so you, you can't really bring that up and say, well, uh, you know, men always make mistakes. No, we don't. Because if we did always err, then you couldn't say that we always err, because to say that we always err would be an error, right? <laughs> that reminds me of this, this funny video I saw a few years ago where this lady's in a foreign country, and she goes up to somebody, and she goes, excuse me, do you speak, uh, do you speak English? He says, nope, I don't speak a lick of it. I, I've tried, I've tried it, and I, I just couldn't learn it, so I, I just kind of gave up on it. And she's sitting there thinking, well, you're, you're speaking in English, right? Yeah, see, so the argument uh, collapses on itself to say that men always err. We don't always err, and it's logically impossible to say that we always err. The second objection is a little bit more serious. They can say, okay, so, so your Bible doesn't have errors, that's fine. Uh, men don't always err, that's fine. How do I know that it's inspired by God? And so they're skeptical of that. By the way, when people ask me, does God speak? Some people will say, well, how do we even know that God speaks? Well, he called his son the word for a reason. You know, I'd say that the fact that he called Jesus the word indicates that he speaks. But, you know, sometimes the Bible tells us that God speaks directly. He speaks directly sometimes. For example, when Jesus was being baptized... What happened? He, he came out of the water, and there's this audible voice that, that everybody's hearing, and God's speaking directly. And this, to me, is, is actually one of the, the greatest proofs of the fact that it really happened. See, if it didn't happen, if, if Matthew was just making it up, wouldn't he have said, this happened in, in private? There was nobody else there, but, but Jesus and a couple other people heard it. No, this was recorded in a, in a public place where there would have been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people present. So, 
if it didn't really happen, don't you think that somebody at least could have come forward and said, no, wait a minute, I, I was there. Nobody heard a voice. Nobody heard a voice. If, if nothing else, Matthew wouldn't have risked the credibility of his letter by saying that it happened in a place where there were thousands of people present. So there are rare instances, rare instances in which God speaks directly. It's much more common that God speaks through people who speak and act and look a lot like you and me. People called prophets. Uh, they, they were a lot like us, and because they were a lot like us, they could speak to our specific needs. Uh, describing how this works exactly, how the prophet speaks the word of God, Jeremiah writes, quote, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary holding it in, and I cannot. That's from Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. So there was just something in him, something burning to get out, and he couldn't contain it. That's how he's describing uh, the, the work of prophecy through him. David, who also prophesied, said, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2. And Peter said something that's really revealing about the whole act of, of prophecy. He said, quote, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. And the word carried along there, that's the same word that you would have used to describe a ship that puts its sail up and the wind just carries it. That's the same word. So that's the image that Peter's giving of how prophecy works. Now, there's, there is kind of a, a little bit of a mystery as to how exactly that works. But if we take all these things together, we see that God was using people as his mouthpiece. Now, Paul's telling his audience in Thessalonica that they correctly identified the words that he spoke to them not as being not the words of men, but as being the words from God. See, Paul liked to, to reason with people. He didn't just tell people, believe this because I say so. Uh, he, he appealed to their intellect. He liked to appeal to their intellect so that they could make a decision, uh, make a decision for themselves. So apparently, he, he was telling them about Jesus and it seems likely that he was giving them some reason, we don't know exactly what it is, but he was giving them some reason to think that what he was telling them wasn't from himself, it wasn't a message from a person, it wasn't something that, uh, that he was trying, it wasn't a case where he was trying to pull something over on them. He was, there was something about his message that convinced them that it was from God. He's already told us that he wasn't trying to flatter the Thessalonians. Remember, he said, uh, I didn't come to you with words of flattery, as you know. So apparently it was something, that, you know, they were, they were very aware that he wasn't just trying to flatter them. See, the, the, the gospel is anything but flattering. The gospel's not flattering at all. It's, it's humbling. And some people would look at it and say it's, it's denigrating. To say that nothing that you can do can please God. The only thing you can do is put your trust for salvation in Jesus to be saved from God's wrath. There's nothing that you can do on your own. Man, that's, that's humbling. That means I have to rely on, on somebody else. And the truth is, the fact that, that anyone would believe that they're not good enough to save themselves is actually diametrically opposed to the human psyche. It's totally opposed to our nature. The fact that anybody believes that you have to 
rely on God is not a human thing. Most people who are sane uh, would tell you that they are a good person. Before, before, I was, uh, before I put my trust for salvation in Jesus, I would have told you I'm a good person. I even go to church sometimes. I would have told you I was a, I was a good person, and, and they'll say that they, they deserve to go to heaven based on how good they are. And so the confession that we're not good enough to deserve anything but the wrath of God isn't something that would have a source in humanity. Instead, it would be proof that there's something or someone outside of us, transcendent over everything, that brings us to the point where we're able to say, I'm not good enough. I need a savior. And that's actually proof of God's existence because it's so contrary to humanity's self-perception. I mean, look at modern psychology today. They say that everybody is, is basically good. Everybody's basically good. Even bad people, even criminals, they're basically good. They're just a product of their environment. They learn some bad habits along the way, but fundamentally, they're good. The gospel says, no, fundamentally, we are not good. So honestly, you know, we don't know exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians that convinced them that what he was speaking was from God rather than from men, but something that he said convinced them that this was a message that was totally different from something that a person would try to make up to push on others. And so for that reason, the Thessalonians overcame the first major obstacle that we face when we're trying to impact others. Because they received the message and they acknowledged God as the source of that message rather than humanity being the source of that message. Now that does create a little bit of a difficulty, however, because anyone can claim that they're speaking on God's behalf. So how do we know if they truly are? I mean, if you, if you, if you look back through history, you find people who will say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. You can, you can go into a, a, a psychic. Some of them will say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. You look at cults. A lot of them will say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Joseph Smith, for example, he, he told, uh, his story is that this angel named Moroni came to him and gave him these spectacles. And by the way, if an angel comes to you and his first name starts with moron, I, I suggest that you stay away from him. That's just my opinion. But He says that this, this angel named Moroni came to him and gave him these spectacles to read these magical golden tablets uh, and told him where to find these magical golden tablets, which uh, coincidentally have never been made public for examination. Hmm. But anyway, so, so Joseph Smith said that he was speaking on behalf of God. And what he did is he, he, he taught these beliefs about God and, and about Jesus that are incredibly different from what the Bible tells us about God and Jesus. Uh, Muhammad actually claimed the same thing. He claimed that, uh, that an angel visited him and, and gave him this new revelation, which, again, was totally contrary to the Bible. So how do we know if somebody really is speaking on God's behalf? I mean, anybody can claim anything, and we shouldn't believe them just because they say so. I mean, my wife could tell you I'm the queen, and the way that you can know that I'm the queen is because I tell you that I'm the queen. That's, that's circular reasoning, right? We, that's not logical. Uh, we don't buy that. But, uh, so, so how do we know if anybody is really speaking the word of God? By the way, no, she's not really a queen, but she, she's mine. 
<laughs> well, one of the ways that we can know uh, that something is from God is by its accuracy. And it's got to be 100% accurate. If, if, if a prophet comes to you and tells you of something that's going to happen, it must happen. And if it doesn't, it's not prophecy. He, they're not speaking on God's behalf. If it's, if it's even 99.9% accurate, it's a lie. It's, it's false. They're not a prophet. Uh, if, if you go to a psychic, they'll, they'll say, you know, the, the best I can give you is a 40% accuracy. I can flip a coin and get better than that. I mean, uh, so, so based on that standard, you know, we, we can really weed out a lot of the garbage that's out there. Um, most predictions of, of psychics are going to be extremely vague so that you can take any event and interpret it to, to meet their, their prediction, or it'll be completely obvious. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to predict that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Well, you know, th- that kind of thing. They'll, they'll predict something that's so obvious that, no, you know, everybody knows that that's going to happen. There's nothing special about that. Uh, in 2008, these are kind of funny. I, I did a Google search for failed uh, prophecies by psychics. Uh, in 2008, one psychic predicted that the Midwest would lose a huge portion of its crops in the month of August due to locusts. Well, you know, farmers lose a, a portion of their crops every year to, to different things, different causes. But that year, there were no locusts. Uh, there wasn't a huge loss of, of uh, crops in August. So guess what? False prophet. Uh, another one in 2008. Um, one psychic was claiming to be channeling the spirit of an Italian nun that died in the 13th century. Uh, and and she, she predicted that a, a top United States general would be killed in Iraq that year in 2008. It didn't happen. False prophet. Now, here's one of the cover-ups that they'll use when their, their prophecies don't come true or their predictions don't come true. They'll say, well, it was averted because I predicted it. Uh, you know, everybody heard my prediction, and they didn't want that to happen, so they took action to avoid it. So that's why it didn't come true. No, that is not how the Word of God works. These are all false prophets who, who weren't speaking on God's behalf, and we can know that because they fall short of the 100% mark. Another reason that we can know uh, is because God is unchanging. And so if somebody comes to us and tells us something that's completely different than what the Bible reveals about God, we can know that whatever it is that they're telling us isn't true because God isn't changing. Now let me ask you guys this. What would change in your life? What would you change about your life and your view of God if you really believed that the Bible was written by God for you, is there anything that would change? <coughs> anything. Because there's one other way that we can know that this is the genuine word of God. And that is that it changes lives. It will transform your life. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about people who just give an intellectual nod to scripture, like, okay, I've read it, you know, great. I can recite Psalm 23, you know. I'm not talking about people who just verbally acknowledge it. I'm not talking about people who memorize it or who are studying it just to scrutinize it. I'm talking about somebody who gets into it and reads it and applies it to their life. They study it and apply it to their life so that they're acting on what they've read. They're responding to it 
by being obedient to it. The author of Hebrews told us how powerful Scripture is and, and why it has the power to change lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active. Yes, even today. Even 2,000 years later, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we can't just pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like and separate it from the parts of the Bible that we don't like, the parts that we don't want to apply to our lives. This leads to what you would call a buffet religion. You know, at a buffet, you go in there and you only pick what you like, right? I mean, when I go to a buffet, I'm like, give me all the crab legs, hold the peas, hold, hold the salad. <laughs> meatloaf, no, forget it. You know, I'm going to pass on the meatloaf. And so what I end up doing is I end up putting only what I like on my plate, right? Well, that, that's not how the Bible works. But there are people out there who try to do that with the Bible. Uh, it, it turns into a customized religion, um, when you order a computer online, if you get on the internet and you, you, you order a computer, a new computer, um, Dell, for example, will take you through a battery of, of questions, uh, figuring out what you want for, for exactly what you're planning on doing. And so you can get a customized computer based on your specific wants and needs. And again, people try to do that with the Bible, where, well, I'm, I'm going to customize religion. You know, give, give me a full portion of, of God's mercy, but hold the wrath. Give, give me a full per, portion of, of his love. Give me a double portion of his love, but, but don't give me justice. Don't give me justice. And that's why when we take the whole word of God, it has the power to transform Lives. The gospel in particular will change a person's life. The person whose life has been truly transformed by the gospel knows that there is nothing else out there that will transform lives the way that the gospel can transform lives. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now note that he, he doesn't say that the gospel has the power of God for salvation. He says it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. See, receiving God's word at face value, as his word, means that we don't just pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like and what parts we don't like, and thereby judge it. No, it judges us. And that's where change, that's where transformation comes in. We see what it says about it, about us, about reality, and so we change what we do. And Paul knew that. That's why he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. That's what most translations say, but the word uh, literally means breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. When it says it's profitable, it means there's something in it for you. It's useful to the individual. He says it's profitable for teaching, that is, instructing you in things that you don't already know. He says it's profitable for reproof, that is, instructing you in what not to do. He says it's profitable for correction, training you what to do. And it's profitable for training in righteousness, 
In other words, there are practical guidelines for everyday Christian living in Scripture. So the first obstacle for us to make an impact is that people might look at it and for whatever reason, they mistake the gospel message as words of man rather than words of God. The, The result of that is it fails to do a work in a person's life. But there is a second obstacle that Paul reveals here. In verses 14 to the first part of 16, he writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all humankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, isn't that interesting? He starts this off by calling them brothers. For you, brothers, became imitators. Now, remember, he's told us, as we saw last week, he's told us that he loved them like a mother, with the gentle, nurturing love of a mother. That was in verse 8. In verse 11, he told us that he loved them with the love of a father. Now, he's calling them brothers. Brothers. Equals. So what made them like brothers? Well, apparently it was the fact that they had become imitators of the churches in Judea. The churches in Judea were facing the same obstacles that the church in Thessalonica was facing. The second obstacle is change. Resistance to change. Fear of the unknown. Being dragged outside of your comfort zone. Going from a state of safety, maybe, to a state of instability, maybe even being persecuted, maybe even losing your life. We've seen that that one of the keys to our success in making an impact is expecting adversity. And a lot of people shy away on this one. They shy away from the change. What are my friends going to think if I become a Christian, if I follow Jesus? Is, is my wife going to leave me? I've heard that one. I've heard that one. I, I had a listener write me a couple years ago, and he said, I want to believe, but I don't know about my wife. I don't know if she'll stay with me. Looking back through the dustbin of history, that's been a constant theme. Persecution has been a constant theme. That's a huge change. People are willing to give up safety, because they believe that this is the word of God. And today, even today, around the world, on almost every continent, you will find serious, serious persecution of Christians. We might feel like we don't have it easy here. We, we do have it pretty easy here. Compared to Asia, uh, where you can be jailed, you can be beaten um, in parts of China, Uh, I know that's something that's going on. Uh, Indonesia, they will kill people for leaving uh, leaving Islam to become a Christ follower. And in fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a man named Saeed Musa, who was a Christian in Afghanistan, who was going to be killed for converting. He was going to be killed. And the church around the world kind of rallied around him online, one of the great benefits of the internet, prayed for him, And he ended up being released. He left Afghanistan. So 
Paul's reminding the Thessalonians that the people who were persecuting them were the same people who had not only persecuted Jesus, but that had killed Jesus. And they've been persecuting Paul and his team of missionaries. Now, instead of looking at that and shying away from embracing this message that Paul had given them, they embraced it. They responded to the persecution the same way that the churches in Judea did. Now, Paul says some some pretty amazing things, given his love for the Jews. If you you read Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11, you you see that, man, he's got a a deep, deep, heartfelt love for the Jews. But right here, he says some some very uh, striking things about the Jews who were persecuting Jesus' followers. One thing I don't think that we should miss is that while Paul said that his motivation for ministry was pleasing God, he makes it crystal clear, explicitly clear, that what these people were doing wasn't pleasing God. Instead, he tells us that they were actually working against God. They were working on the, on the enemy's side to prevent the gospel from being spread to the Gentiles and thereby allowing the Gentiles to be saved. But here's the thing. Did the, did the Jews think that what they were doing was displeasing to God? Probably not. They who, a lot like everybody else who thinks that their works are good enough to get them into heaven, um, they probably thought that uh, they were good enough to get into heaven on their own, and so they were greatly offended by the gospel. They were offended by it, and so what did they do? They persecuted Christians. They thought that the teachings of these Christ followers were contradicting the teachings of Judaism instead of fulfilling the obligations of Judaism. But here's the thing, you know, the gospel renders things like power and position and prestige and influence and human accomplishments, it renders all of those things meaningless, totally meaningless. And it sets a level playing field for absolutely everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. The things that people value and strive for are the things that God looks at and says, and says you know what, that, that's like a filthy rag to me. Get it out of my presence. With the gospel, anyone has access to God. Anyone. It doesn't matter what their past might look like. Anyone can put their trust for salvation in Jesus and receive God's mercy. If a person wants to get to God, they can only do that through trust in Jesus. And he said, no one can come to the Father but by me. No matter how much somebody might think they love God, no matter how obedient they might think they are to God, if they don't put their trust for salvation in Jesus, it's all for nothing. And the world is offended by that. The world doesn't like that. They don't like that it's so exclusive. But there are so many things in life that are exclusive. How many of you guys have keys with you today? You know, a key is exclusive. You, you only want there to be one, right? I, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel too safe having a key that, uh, that absolutely everybody has. Uh, anybody have an email account? Your password is exclusive. Close enough isn't good enough, right? And, and you like that because you don't want people to be able to get into your email. So yeah, we think exclusivity is a good thing. You know, you, you miss it by, by one letter and guess what? Bzz, try again. You know, truth is always exclusive and absolute. Truth is never relative. 
Imagine going into, um, going into a bank, for example, and saying, um, you know, can you pull up my account information? And they ask for your account number, and you say, you know, X, Y, Z, or whatever it might be. And they say, well, uh, you know, nothing comes up with that number. What do you say? I, I think I was close enough. No, you, you, you figure out another way. Maybe they look you up by name or whatever. Or imagine going into a bank and saying, um, I'd like to withdraw $5,000 from my checking account, please. And so they pull your account information up and they say, I'm sorry, sir, you have uh, $36.18 in there. What do you say? Well, that's true for you, but not for me. Yeah, try pulling that one off. I don't think so. Truth is absolute and exclusive by nature. And so Paul tells us that the Thessalonians didn't take the easy way out. They didn't fall prey to either of the obstacles that they possibly could have fallen to. They embraced the message that Paul was teaching, recognizing that it was from God, not from men. And they subjected themselves to the work that the word of God would do in them and will do in us when we embrace it. And they did all this in spite of the risk of losing absolutely everything. Now, the final thing that Paul brings to our attention is the fact that God... God's willing to do some drastic things. He's willing to go to extreme measures to get our attention. He's continuing to discuss the Jews who are persecuting both the church in Judea and the church in Thessalonica. And he writes, So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. See, that's the the disastrous result of the Jews who are working in opposition to the gospel. He says they're filling up the measure of their sins. That's a, that's a figure of speech that the prophets used, like the, the cup is being filled with their sins, and once it's overflowing, the wrath of God is poured out. So he's talking about the fact that they're kind of in for a taste of their own medicine. God's wrath is coming. Is God done with Israel? Is he done with the Jews? No. I think if you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, it's, it's very, very clear that God is not done with Israel. Paul told us that God's gifts and callings applied to Israel are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked. They can't be taken back. And he illustrated this about, by, by giving this illustration of a tree where the fruitless branches, the unfaithful Israelites, would be, would be cut off so that faithful people, the Gentiles, could be grafted in. But his plan was ultimately to graft those branches that were cut off back in. That's ultimately his plan. And so God's wrath was about to be poured out on the individuals who had rejected and stood in the way of the gospel message. Jesus had already said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking to the Jews. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's from Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. He said, Daughters of Israel, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. That's from Luke 23, 28. So the sentence had been already handed down. Guilty. But the wrath was on hold while a few Jews would be saved by putting their trust in Jesus for salvation. Most of them did not believe, but the early church consisted almost entirely of Jews who did believe. And Paul knew that some Jews 
could still be saved. There, there was still time. Even when he wrote this, there was still time. When he moved on to Berea, he did the same thing that he did when he went to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue, as he always did. He went first to the synagogue to try and reason with the Jews so that some of them might believe. And as he left Berea, he went to the city of Corinth where he did the same thing. He went to the synagogue so that the few who would believe would be saved, but most didn't. Paul knew that God's last-ditch effort was to unleash wrath, calamity, as a wake-up call. And sadly, that's exactly what history tells us happened not a whole lot longer after this was written. In AD 70, year 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was ransacked by the Roman Empire. It was destroyed, and Jews were persecuted. They scattered. God knows that sometimes our eyes won't be opened unless disaster strikes. But you know what the difference was between those who fell under God's wrath and those who received his mercy? Ultimately, it was what they did with the message that Paul spoke. For those who correctly identified that message as having its source in God rather than man, they may have received some temporary hardships, some persecution, but they had eternal blessings. They were willing to surrender everything for that message because they realized that it was God's word. And once they accepted it as God's word, it did the same thing to them that it'll do to us. It worked in them. It changed them. It transformed their lives. And you know what? The world's changing all the time. Especially in the Middle East right now, there are all these crazy things going on, but God's word is unchanging. God is unchanging. And his word is unchanging. It'll transform you just like it transforms me every single time I get into it. It makes me a little bit more like Jesus. And it's the same thing that Paul says it did in the lives of the Thessalonian followers of Jesus. It transformed their lives. The fact that people are resistant to change is a difficult obstacle. But one thing, one thing that'll make it easier for them is for them to see a transformed life in front of them. That's our job, to model that transformed life for a broken world that needs Jesus so that they want what we have so that the gospel can do the same work in them that it's done in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we thank you for the amazing work that it has done in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage and boldness and and a willingness to give up our comfort zones, the things of this world that we cling to for the sake of the gospel. Teach us to be bold. Teach us to be more like you in order that we can see your word transform the lives of those that we know who don't know you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. 
If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. A king like you